Amen. Well, today, uh, if you're a guest with us, we're, we work our way through Scripture, and you happen to have joined us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to read to you um, verses 10 through 16, 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16, where we happen to be at this moment. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness the godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the, uh, we are picking up in the middle of this uh, passage, really, because of the, the um, there's so much in it, but we ended kind of halfway in this, is in this account of how Paul had finally heard back from Titus that the church in Corinth had received this letter that we don't have. It's a letter, um, a letter that is lost to history, but apparently it was a very severe letter. And Paul was a little concerned that when they read the letter, they might, you know, when you're confronted, you do one of two things. You either in pride reject it and, and get defensive or you receive it and become repentant. And Paul was, of course, praying for the latter. And to hear that that was the case, it had just really comforted him and encouraged him. So verse 10 again, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is one of those defining verses. Um, I like to uh, refer to them as eternal truths. You know, there are certain just chunks of scripture that that define things and that we can go back to again and again. It's those verses that you underline because they give you guidance and they, they help you understand the mind of God and how we should be. And so um, they're just key passages that you should mark so you can go back to them when you need them. There are two kinds of grief. There's godly grief, which is resulting from conviction of the Holy Spirit. We know we realize that we've offended God by our actions. And because we love him, because of all he is and all that he's done for us, we're grieved at our, our weak 
an ungrateful nature and how we let our, our old nature prevail and dictate our actions and then we regret that we gave in to our weaknesses. That sorrow that causes us to turn to the Lord and to change our behavior and depend more on the Lord's strength to face temptations. That's working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're saved, his, his spirit is in us, and yet we need to let that be manifested in our lives, worked out in our lives. On the other hand, there's worldly grief, and the scripture here tells us worldly grief produces death. I know some people who grieve their whole life over a past incident. It's not over sin, but it's rather remorse that things didn't go the way they wanted them to go. It's self-centered disappointment. It, it can be something that was very troubling, but it's something they just will not let go of and give to God. Sometimes it's circumstances or consequences. It's full of self-pity. Tears are not always a sign of repentance. They can be signs of self-pity. Those who cling to worldly grief will just will not give the situation to God and let go of it. Our attitudes affect our physical bodies. You know, this is something that uh, recently um, science has, has learned more and more about our attitude in life and how it affects our our the actual physical body that we have when we're depressed and discouraged our immune system gets weaker when we're joyful and confident our immune system gets stronger and so there's this interaction of our mind and our body that we don't quite fully understand but we can prove is evident worldly grief can be a result of of being unable to forgive ourselves for an embarrassing failure. Or it can be blaming God that things didn't go the way we wanted them to go. Examples of worldly grief in scripture are like, for example, Esau. Esau sold his birthright, right, to Jacob for that, that lentil stew, and he regretted it, and he sought it with tears, it tells us in Hebrews 12, 15. And then there's the worldly grief of Judas, after betraying Jesus. Things didn't go the way he planned. And so instead of repenting and turning around and going the way God wanted him to go, he stayed in that worldly grief and took his life. Psalm 32, this morning in Bible study, we were talking about how King David, in that psalm, it shows him go from worldly grief over the hand of God, he says, heavy upon me day and night. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. And then finally he turns to the Lord and repents and is restored. So worldly grief in that case turned into godly grief when he was willing to confess his sin and forsake it. On Wednesday night, we recently came to the dramatic conclusion of the story of Joseph. And one of the key points was his father, Jacob. He had had to send his beloved son, Benjamin. He thought he'd lost Joseph, and then he finally got to the point where they were gonna starve to death if he didn't send the other son that he dearly loved, Benjamin, down into Egypt. And he says, all is against me. In other words, everything is bad. There's nothing good. It's all bad. 
But what he didn't realize was everything was for him. He was about to find out Joseph was alive and that what God was going to spare him and his, and his flocks and his family from the famine. We often, when we have that worldly grief, we're usually looking from a world perspective and seeing circumstances as they are. We're being honest about them, but then we're not trusting God. When his sons returned and told him nothing was what it appeared to be, he had a hard time believing it at first. But then he saw the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to haul all of his goods back to Egypt, and his faith, it says his faith revived. He trusted what he could see rather than the promises of God. And that's how we put ourselves in a funk. You know, God had promised him as one of the patriarchs that his seed would multiply and, and fill the, there would be so many to be like the stars of the heaven and one of his descendants is gonna bless the earth, the whole world. And yet all he could see was he lost Joseph and he was gonna lose Benjamin and everything was against him until he found out everything was for him, that God was keeping his word and then his spirit revived. Brothers and sisters, you may be going through difficulties, but you're recipients of the promises given to Jacob. That one who blessed the world is yours, Jesus Christ. And he's blessing your life, and he promises you in the scripture, I will never leave you or forsake you. The same promise he gave to Jacob. So when the worldly situations in life just seem overwhelming, remember Jacob's plight. And remember to look at it differently from God's eyes. Look at it through the promises of God. After the crucifixion, Jesus appeared to his disciples, but Thomas was not with them. He was suffering from worldly grief over Jesus' death. He wasn't clinging to Jesus' words. Jesus told them over and over, I'm going to be delivered to the hands of Gentiles. They're going to beat me and kill me, and after three days I will rise. If he would have been clinging to that word when they told him, Jesus appeared, Thomas, you weren't here. He would have gone, wahoo, I knew it. But instead, he was so stuck in his worldly grief, he says, unless I can put my finger in the nail holes and stick my hand in his side, I will not believe. So when Jesus shows up the second time, Jesus says, go ahead, Tom, Thomas, do it. Here, stick your finger and stick your hand in my side and don't be faithless, but believe. Believe what? Believe the word of God. Over the circumstances, over everything you see, over everything you've been through, over everything you're tempted to think is against you, believe the word of God. And Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. God wants us to have faith in his word. He's declared that his plans for you are for your good and that all things work together for good to those who love God. And that includes the things that tempt you to have worldly grief. Will we have eyes of faith and not wallow in worldly grief because we believe? Because we will be tested in this. This is one of those passages that you will be tested in. Every human being is tested in this passage. If we want a blessing, 
will believe God's word. And that will help us through. We cannot see what God's doing, but we can believe his promises and have faith in his word. Now, we should deal with our worldly grief by repenting for not having trust in God and living in a, a life of faith in his forgiveness and his love for us. That turns it into godly grief, knowing our attitude has been sinful. Blessed are those who mourn. That's because it can lead to repentance and restoration. When our minds turn to praise and to trust in God, our attitude follows. It's not easy, but with God we know that all things are possible. It's choosing to believe that God can empower us to change the way we think and the way we feel if we will trust Him, if we will believe Him. We see it throughout the Psalms. You know, how many Psalms start with, oh Lord, how long? You know that expression, I don't know, it must be at least 20 times in the Psalms. How long, O oh Lord, will you let this or that situation continue? Pouring out their grief to God. God can take it. It's all right. You can tell him how frustrated you are. You can tell him how grieved you are about a situation. But then the psalmist ends up with praise, saying that he has hope in God. Because of all the things God has done before, he has hope in him. Grieving over the loss of a loved one is a process that we have to go through. It's necessary for us to acknowledge that feeling of separation. And that is where the grief comes in. But for the believer, we have to move on to the hope that we have in Christ. Our hope is that we're going to see them again and that they're in a much better place. Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes 7, 2 to 4, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So we learn from that time of grieving what is of true importance. A memorial service is one of those few times that we stop and really take a moment to consider how brief life is, how quickly it passes, and then to ask if we're using our time wisely. But we don't stay in grief, as Solomon said. The godly grief turns to true joy when we learn from the sorrow and place our trust in God. Again, they, there's the example of David. While he hid his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba, he said that day and night, his, God's hand was heavy on him. But when Nathan confronted him and he confessed his sin, that confession brought restoration, salvation. And the reason Paul could write that this salvation was without regret is that we know our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west and remembered no more. The grief led to repentance and a restored relationship with God. Verse 11, For see what earnestness 
this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Paul's severe letter to the Corinthians bore the fruit of godly grief, manifested in seven different ways that Paul expressed here. The first way was earnestness, an earnestness that perhaps they had, had lost. They were earnest to walk with Jesus by faith rather than the law. They were also eager to clear themselves of their agreement with the false teacher and his attacks on Paul's character. They were indignant about being misled. The fear of the Lord led them to repent of their ungrateful attitude toward Paul and his team. And they had renewed a longing for his spirit-led teaching and they were zealous to stand for the truth. And they must have dealt with those who still opposed the gospel of grace with spiritual discipline. Paul had no doubts as to the sincerity for the true gospel that they no longer entertained a work-based salvation or attacks on Paul from the false teachers. Correction's often hard to receive because our old nature is prideful. But if our spirit is ruling over our old nature, we will also have the good fruit that was wrought in the Corinthians. Correction is really a blessing. The Proverbs tell us that open rebuke is better than secret love. And the wounds of a friend are faithful, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That's Proverbs 27, five and six. Sometimes people can be misguided in their correction. They think they have heard from the Lord or understand everything that's involved in a situation and they intervene to give correction. If you're in the spirit, and if you're walking in the spirit in daily communion with the Lord, um, you'll know right off whether it's confirming a conviction that the Holy Spirit's already been giving you or that it's off base. But if you're in doubt, you should go to the Lord for a word of, for clarification. The Holy Spirit will let you know if, it's, if the correction is necessary or not. Go to the Lord and his word. Verse 12 and 13a, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. So again, we see Paul's heart for the Corinthian believers. He wrote that severe letter, not so much to deal with the offender or to justify himself, but that the church might see the earnestness that they had buried in their hearts. When Paul was with them for a year and a half, he saw that passion that they had to grow in the Lord and the, and the love they had for Jesus and the wonder of, of faith and grace. And the goal was for the restoration of the whole church to, to the place from which they had fallen, that earnestness returning. It was to bring back the zeal in their relationship. The fact that it produced the results Paul hoped for comforted his heart. That concern that weighed so heavily on him was lifted. If you're under godly elders and you have backslidden, 
in your earnestness and your zeal, know that your elders feel like the Apostle Paul and his team did. They're praying for you. They're burdened for you. And when you're restored and moving forward again, they are comforted and encouraged. Godly elders live to see each soul moving forward in their faith and passionate about their relationship with the Lord. They long to see that your relationship with Jesus takes first place in your lives. And for you to step into your calling, that is our comfort and our joy. The word comfort is used frequently in this passage. It's the Greek word parakaleo, para to be beside, kaleo to call out. It's a compound word. And the meaning, uh, that's the basic meaning, but Paul describes God as the God of all comfort in verse 7 of this chapter. And Paul declared that God comforts the downcast. In verse 6 and 13, Paul says he and his team were comforted, same word, by the coming of Titus, for he, when, for he told them the good news of how the Corinthians received the letter in all humility. A form of the word is used as a name for the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26. And later in this letter, Paul tells us to comfort one another. Same word, come alongside and call out. What do we call out? We call out the promises of God. We call out the encouragement from the Holy Spirit. We call out our own personal care and love for that person. We are to comfort the downcast, just as God does with us. We remind them of the promises of God. We can be the fulfillment of the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 13b, and besides your own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. A blessing that came in addition to the good news about Corinth was the upbeat spirit that Titus brought back. His joy brought Paul's team joy. They could see by how refreshed he was from his visit to the Corinthians that what he relayed to them was truly the case. The Corinthians were back on track, rejecting the false teaching and standing firm in the gospel of grace. When we're inspired, we inspire others who we're with. You know, you know that feeling when someone comes alongside you and you just know they've been with Jesus and they have a testimony and they're encouraged and it lifts your spirit. It comforts you. Do not forget to share testimonies of God at work in your life because they encourage other people's faith and bring joy to their hearts. Just as love begets love, so joy also begets joy. Share those testimonies of how God intervened and brought you through a trial or, or clarified to you a truth in his word. I, I remember I used to have a friend, when I lived in Japan, there was this one guy, his name was Abraham, by the way. And uh, he would, every time I saw him, he didn't live in the same town, but every time I saw him, he would say, what's God showing you? And then it would be like, oh boy, I get to share, you know? And I'd share something with him. He knew when he asked me, I was gonna have something to share with him. So I knew if I was gonna see Abraham, I knew I had to think about what's God showing me. We should be that way. Amen. 
ready to share what God's showing us all the time. There's never been a time in history of mankind when people do not need to be refreshed and encouraged because we live in a fallen world. Things are not as they should be. We need reminders of God's goodness and of his faithfulness. Verse 14, for whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Paul had boasted to Titus about the spiritual zeal of the Corinthian church, and Titus learned that everything Paul said about them was true. And just as what Paul said to Titus was true, so all that Paul taught the Corinthians was true as well. Paul's reinforcing their understanding of the gospel that he presented as objective truth, despite what the false teachers had claimed. It's a glorious gospel of the love of God expressed on the cross. It's grace so great that we cannot fathom its fullness. They'd received that grace and they were growing in that grace. Even though they had stumbled along the way, their foundation stayed firm and they got back on track and continued on their journey. And may that ever be true of us all, amen? When you fall, uh, one, one uh, pastor used to say, if you fall, make it a fall forward. In other words, learn from it and change and make it a step in, of progress. Verse 14, for whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm backing up here. Verse 15, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. You see, Titus found the Corinthians reverently receptive to God's word, humbled by having been sidetracked and ready to receive the correction. That's the biggest difference when we receive correction, whether we receive it in humility or in pride. That made Titus love them all the more that they were humble and receptive. They acted on what he taught them. That's the joy of an elder to see the word received and put into action. You know, any congregation can sing and nod their approval and shout amen. Well, we don't get many of those, but we get a few. But if there's not change, then it's just religious routine. The proof of being receptive is an increased love for God and for our fellow man and obedience to the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul's faith in them was verified by how they received Titus. That gave him cause to rejoice and reinforce that conviction that they were firm in their faith. His year and a half with them had borne fruit, fruit that remained. They would continue and they would make disciples. Who would make disciples? Fulfilling the Great Commission. The strategic location of Corinth was going to influence, influence many other areas and result in the gospel of Jesus going to other regions. That was Paul's goal, that others would come to know the love and grace of God. God who comforts the downcast, who saves sinners, and who makes a wretch his treasure. This passage of scripture reminds us of 
of the good that can come out of correction. It also tells us of the relationship between elders and their congregation. While it deals with painful correction, it tells of the joy and the comfort that comes from correction. Very few of us enjoy confrontation, amen? But confrontation can be the sincerest form of love. Where the truth of the gospel of grace is compromised or distorted, confrontation is absolutely necessary. To ignore it would be a lack of love. Paul's told us he and his whole team despaired of life while they were in Macedonia. There were outward fights and inward fears. But God, but God, those are glorious words. The world is fallen and sinful, but God sent his only son into a world to save sinners through his sacrificial death. And in doing so, he made a way to God for all who will faith have faith in him. Life is full of suffering, but God is with us. We have grief, but God comforts the downcast. Life can be hard, harder than we think we can bear at times, but God has promised he will make a way to escape. He's the God of all comfort and the God who comforts the downcast. Sometimes he's so gracious as to comfort others through us as his instruments. What a savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? Let's stand and sing.